Welcome to episode 102 of the Ask a Chief show, where we answer all of your burning questions on all things health, fitness, and nutrition. We're your hosts, Lauren and Jason Pack, and we're on a mission to bring inclusivity and positive vibes to the fitness space. Today, we'll be discussing how to train with osteoporosis, how to get into a proper conventional deadlift stance, and bracing and breathing for squats and deadlifts. We hope you're excited. Let's get into the show. What's up, Achievers? Episode 102. We're both a little raspy this morning. A little raspy. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, we got some people that um, that submitted some uh, some suggestions for how to close out that sentence. Health, health, fitness, and I think we've got building muscles, health, fitness, and feeling your body. And uh, the feeling your body, they're like... And you get that B body <laughs> because you're really looking for that. So. We're, we're, we're st- I, I like those, but we're still feel, feeling some more. I, I want to make sure that we that we get it right. Yeah. For yeah. now, we'll just say nutrition. Yeah. It works. <laughs> um, all right. So we have four questions today, but two of them are about kind of a similar topic. So I combined them. Okay, cool. hope that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first one we're going to go with is um, the person said, I have osteoporosis and was wondering if I need a personal trainer or what do I need? My doctor has me terrified that I will break a bone. I don't want to be afraid. Any suggestions of what not to do or to do? Thank you. Um, and so we'll start out obviously by saying we're not doctors and so we're not um, experts in this by any means and always listen to your doctor. There's varying ranges of osteoporosis. There's osteopenia, which is like pre-osteoporosis, and then there's more, you know, advanced osteoporosis, which you probably need different recommendations. So this will be a general, um, under our general understanding of how to train around it. Um, but definitely always listen to your doctor first and foremost, who specializes in that area. Um, actually my mom has osteoporosis, um, and she trains, she strength trains with us. Um, and has never broken a bone. <laughs> um, and so the the actual recommendations for especially people with osteopenia, which is pre-osteoporosis, is to start weight-bearing exercise, which is strength training. Um, and a lot of people think that if you have it, you're very fragile. And it's true that your bones are getting a little bit more fragile, but it doesn't mean that you should stay away from strength training, especially because strength training actually helps to strengthen your bones. <laughs> it doesn't just strengthen your muscles, it actually strengthens your bones. Um, and so there, most doctors that I've heard, and my mom's doctor as well, have recommended to continue weight-bearing exercises like lifting weights. Yeah. Um, the things that we would avoid would be just like really high impact, um, exercises. So maybe not doing like Olympic lifts and probably (laughs) not doing like box jumps or anything where you're just really landing very hard or it has a high impact on your body. Um, but things like squats and deadlifts and pushups and using kettlebells and dumbbells, they're all very, very safe. Um, unless you're very contraindicated uh, according to your doctor, but if, if not only are they safe, but they actually tend to help your cause. Yeah, I mean, just watching your mom at the gym. I mean, she does everything that all of the rest of our members do in yeah. terms of all that. I mean, she even does a little bit of impact stuff with like Metcon classes and stuff. She and does. She's totally yeah. fine. It's, yeah. Well, it's more just about using common sense and not going overboard with it or, or aggressively jumping up in weights with the strength training. But as long as you're just conservatively. You know, increasing weights and not going overboard. I, I think it's everything pretty much is totally fine. When she first got diagnosed, it was actually one of the reasons that she started to train with us mm-hmm. and her bone density actually improved. Yeah. So when she went back to the doctor, she had improved bone density after starting a strength training program. So if that doesn't tell you 
kind of <laughs> <laughs> the benefits right there. It was pretty clear that uh, it really did make a difference. So you don't have to go crazy with weight training, but just incorporating it into your routine. We definitely think there's benefit. You just have to do it gradually as well. So it doesn't mean that like if you've never strength trained before, don't just jump into back squats and deadlifts. Like yep. you might not ever get to those <laughs> variations of exercises and that's totally fine. You can use dumbbells, you can do body weight strength exercises, um, and then gradually increase the weights and gradually add like a five, five pound dumbbell, then a 10 pound dumbbell. You don't have to jump right to barbells or anything like that, but all of that is going to help with your bone density and also just help with your movement in general. And the more that you move and the, the more that you move, the better you'll feel. So. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, yeah, I guess your, your mom started off with goblet squats and kettlebell deadlifts and TRX rows, things right. that were a little bit more foundational before she moved on to some of the more advanced stuff. Um, but definitely do not be, um, I guess, fear-mongered into thinking that you can't do anything or that right. your body will break almost immediately. You know, and I think, I think this comes from, if you're a doctor, I mean, I think you've probably spent eight to 10 years of just trying to figure out and fix dysfunctions and identify what the negative thing is happening without really understanding that the other side, like the other side of the equation is the person hearing the information and understanding what happens to their psyche when you just give them what's wrong about them. Mm. And um, that's happening more and more um, lately. What's happening more and more lately is actually there's a kind of a pushback against that from more forward thinking, progressive clinicians and physical therapists and noting that there's a huge nocebo effect that happens as a result of this and so there's a big pushback now saying that you know if you just tell people that their uh, sacrum is out of place or their back is thrown out or they have degenerative disc disease and they have all these things then things that could have not been a big issue suddenly manifest into a bigger issue because they get t told all these things that they're, that's wrong with them and what could potentially go wrong as a result of what's wrong with them and just manifests in something, something that's so much bigger than it just could have been, right? right? So, um, but yeah, definitely you, you're much more capable than you realize and this is not any sort of like big life sentence of not moving ever kind right. of thing. Like yeah. probably don't go out and play like tackle football, but <laughs> you can probably be safe in the weight room. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So the next one, um, this is kind of two questions that I'm going to combine into one. So one question was assuming proper conventional deadlift form, please help low back gets so, gets so sore and takes a week to recover. The other question was, why is it that I find it easier to perform a conventional deadlift than a sumo? Is it because some sort of mobility restriction? It feels so awkward for me to do. Conventional seems more natural, unlike other people. Big hug and thanks. So this is funny because it's two different questions, and they're, they're both about conventional deadlifts, but one person is saying conventional deadlifts are really hard for me to get into, <laughs> and one person is saying conventional deadlift feels so much more natural to me. Why is it more natural to me than sumo? And that's sort of why I wanted to combine them, to just show that... There is no one right stance, and there's going to be different stances that feel better to different people. Yeah, right? definitely. So that's kind of the overarching theme here. Yeah. And then let's go back to the first question, which was how to set up for a conventional deadlift. Right? Um, yeah, can you, can you, sorry, I, I forget the first question again. <clears throat> sorry. Um, the first question was how to set up for a conventional deadlift. 
<laughs> she said that her her back gets uh, sore. Oh, oh, the back gets sore. Yeah. So um, you know, a number of reasons can happen. A number of things can be um, going on with your form that makes your lower back a little bit more sore. You know, the first thing to note is that lower back soreness is perfectly normal. Um, I, I would say taking longer than a week to recover probably means that there's some things that we can optimize with your setup. But um, you know, a lot of people ask, should my lower back be sore? Because I know a lot of people think that their lower back should be totally fine while they're deadlifting, but in reality, it's working pretty significantly while it's picking up a heavy weight, so um, it's perfectly normal to be sore. Now, the things that we see most commonly when people set up for a deadlift, but then they end up getting some back issues are, number one, a lot of times the bar is a little bit far away from them, yeah. right? So the big thing is to really keep that bar as close to your shins and as you pick up the barbell, keep it as close to your body as you can. Like, like literally like grazing your shins as you come up. You don't want to like scrape that much. Graze your shins. And the closer it is, the more efficient of a pull it's going to be because of the better leverage that you have. Even like a centimeter out in front of you just magnifies the load so much more and places so much more stress on your lower back. Would you say that's, yes, that's pretty accurate? Yep. Um, the other thing that could be happening up on uh, happening with your setup is mm -hmm. that you might be coming down, grabbing the bar, and before you pull, you're still in a rounded back position, and that's another very common one. And basically, we would just try to cue you out of that. We'd probably tell you, okay, let's try to keep your chest up. Okay, let's try to keep. Let's try to set up from the top down. So make sure that your back stays flat as you come down, instead of coming down into an already rounded position. Because sometimes it can be difficult to get out of that once you start to set up. Um, try, trying just different cues and different setup uh, drills. However, if that doesn't fix it, then we'll just bring the bar up to you. So elevating the barbell on, let's say, a couple of plates or a couple of mats to make sure that you can adopt a really flat back position as you're going through the movement. And then probably the third thing that we see uh, happen a lot is overarching of the lower back as someone gets down into <clears throat> the bottom of the pole. And it, it's just like you just see an overly extended position where they're arched. And that, again, places a little bit more stress on the lower back as well. And in that case, it's less of a cueing thing and more of a spending a little bit more time with wall marching and dead bugging and just floor-based core activities where we really try to bring awareness to and build strength and stability to your rib cage and pelvis connection. So it's not core strength as like sit-ups and crunches, but core strength of trying to maintain that connection between your rib cage and pelvis. Um, you know, one of the most common faults that we see with planks and push-ups is the lower back sort of kind of sagging as they go through the movement. But we want to make sure that you can tie up your rib cage and pelvis together in order to create a better sort of trunk stability effect. So those are the three big ones that we tend to see um, from a setting up a conventional deadlift setup. Yeah, and I would say, like like you said in the very beginning, that it's okay for your lower back to be sore. I used to definitely be like, oh my god, if my lower back's sore, I deadlifted wrong. Yeah. Um, yep. But if your lower back is the only thing that's sore, then I would say that maybe a, a slight red flag just to be like, maybe my form wasn't great because 
your every like, kind of like everything in your posterior chain should be sore. Yeah. If if you're gonna be sore, uh huh. Yep. Then it should be your hamstrings, your glutes, your lower back, and your upper back. Yeah. I would say all of that stuff should be kind of like equally distributed. If you only feel your lower back the day after, then that might be more of an indication that your setup might have been a little off. Yeah, that's right? true. Yeah. Um. So, but if you feel just overall soreness and your lower back is a part of that, I really put, probably wouldn't even worry about it at all. Yeah. It's probably everything's going going great. Um, but yeah, I think that those three things that you laid out are usually the three. Yeah, I would, say, I would say the two, the two recommendations we can make are, number one, take a video of yourself from the side and see whether or not um, you are doing any one of those things. So again, number one is the bar is a little bit too far away from your shins and your body as you go through the pull. Uh, number two is your back is rounding at the bottom of the deadlift. And number three, your back is arching at the bottom of the deadlift. So figure out if it's in any one of those three and then try to do some of the suggestions that we made. You can even DM us a video of your deadlift and we can take a look at it as well. And then finally, probably I would recommend seeing a personal trainer or a fitness coach just to uh, get some other eyes on you and uh, help you out with some potential drills that could uh, help uh, you'll alleviate that. Yeah, and you'll notice that we didn't say anything about like specific body angles that you should be aiming for. Like, mm. you know, your body should be angled at 45 degrees or anything like that because yeah. everybody's limb lengths are very different. So that's why the only thing that we're really concerned about is the positioning of the bar and then how your spine is basically aligned. Um, yeah. But otherwise, everybody's going to look very different. Like Jason's conventional stance and mine are extremely different because mm -hmm. we have very different limb lengths basically um and different proportions and so his his hips are much lower than mine are both of us feel very comfortable in, in our deadlift stance neither of us feel our lower backs kicking in too much but they look very different um so it's okay if it doesn't look like someone else don't try to mimic someone else's stance necessarily focus more on your alignment where the bar is and all of that should just kind of take care of whatever issues are going on yeah absolutely Cool. All right, so the second, so the second one was kind of the opposite question. She has an easier time getting into a conventional stance, and she's wondering why she finds it easier than sumo. And I think this is a question potentially because a lot of times we talk about how the order of the way we teach deadlifts is we go kettlebell deadlift, double kettlebell deadlift, trap bar deadlift, sumo deadlift, conventional deadlift. Yeah. Right? And that's typically the route that we take because we do find that for a lot of people sumo it requires a little bit less mobility yeah. so it's a little bit easier to access for some people yeah um but that doesn't mean that it's the most natural stance for everyone definitely yeah there there are select cases where um hip mobility definitely plays a factor whether it's like um you know groin adductor mobility um just general hip strength and mobility uh kind of like being in that open position um, also, some people just structurally have hip limitations that don't allow them to go out that wide. And again, that's totally fine. As soon as we see that and recognize that, we just bring them to a conventional stance and that's, we, we just explain to them that seems to be their preferred stance and that's what we're going to go with. But there's no reason to fit a square peg into a round hole right. by forcing someone into a sumo deadlift. It's just not worth it. Having said that, there is a lot of room for variability between deadlift setups. So we might set someone up with about a 1.5 uh, outside shoulder width, uh, 1.5 their shoulders. How do you say that? <laughs> um, instead of like two times shoulder width, because yeah. that's like the typical conventional or typical sumo stance is like two times the width of your shoulders. So basically, like, yeah, it doesn't actually. 
That doesn't actually make sense <laughs> when you actually say it out loud. But I think like people can visualize yeah, what yeah. that means, two, right? Two and times if, shoulder width. If shoulder is width like... was your feet right underneath your shoulders, you go out another shoulder width with yeah. each foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you, that. You, you guys get it. So um, that's kind of like the typical starting point for a sumo. And some people go even wider to um, try to bring themselves lower down towards the floor to optimize your leverage a little bit. Um, but for us, we don't go that extreme. We'll, we'll stick with up to two times shoulder width. And then if that doesn't feel great, we'll actually start sinking them in closer and closer together uh, until sometimes they're about just outside of shoulder width. Right. And then again, we can start to play around with foot flare and their knee positioning as well. So <clears throat> some people will deadlift with their feet pointed straight ahead. Some people feel much better with their feet at 45 degree angles. And then some people feel better with slightly even uh, wider angles than that and really pushing their knees apart wide. And so there's a lot of variability between even just a sumo deadlift and their respective stances based on the individual that's in front of us. Yeah, essentially when we're talking about sumo versus conventional in the gym at Achieve, we're pretty much just talking about hand position. Yeah. And that's not the that's not like the official powerlifting way of viewing it. Definitely yeah. not powerlifters would hate us for that, but it's really just like, are your hands inside your legs or outside? Because there's so much room for variability, like Jason was saying, with how wide your stance should be based on how comfortable you are. And what we're always thinking about is like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And if you are doing it to lift the most amount of weight, that's very different than if you're doing it to create them, like be able to produce the most force into the ground comfortably and feel really strong and good. Yeah. And that's usually the route that we're going with our general population is like, what feels the best to you? What, what allows you to pick this weight up pain-free and, and is going to make you stronger in the long run? Yeah. Um, as opposed to how can we get that extra five pounds to like really set a PR and yeah. th those kinds of things? Cause then we might be a little more aggressive with like the width of your stance in a sumo or something like that. But yeah. For us, it's just all about playing around with the angles to find the position that that person feels like, oh, wow, I can really push into the floor from this position. Yes. I can really feel myself wedging under the bar in this position. And those are all the things that are going to make you strong and safe during a deadlift, and that's really what we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, even when we make an adjustment or a modification with someone, regardless of how we think it looks, we always start with, how does that feel? And if they feel unbalanced or uncomfortable, they can sense something that we can't visually see. And so it, that's much more important than just our objective being like, okay, that's better for you. You're going to do that. Um, there has to be a mutual uh, agreement and mutual discussion on what feels the best for that person. Definitely. Cool. Cool. So to answer the question, I wouldn't worry about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So just, <laughs> like, just stick with conventional. Just stick list. with conventional, yeah. It's totally fine. Um, okay, and then the last one is how do you teach breathing and bracing for squats and deadlifts? So, you know, we don't overly complicate this process, right? Um, I think for, in terms of bracing, like all we have them do is just basically, and, and this is only if even someone asks, and it's, we, we what I do is typically teach them to kind of like, Kind of like a mimic the how we coach core work so marching and dead bugs we i try to mimic that position or i'll say something along the lines of imagine that i was about to punch you in the stomach right now which i which i would never do <laughs> <laughs> um 
your your uh, your stomach would basically tighten and compress a little bit. You wouldn't suck in or you wouldn't like be pushing out. You would just tighten and compress, and that's generally the feeling that I want you to go for as you're going down into the bottom of the squat. Definitely, that's the exact cue I use. I think that's the one that most people get the most. If you just say brace. People don't really understand what that means. Yeah. Um, if you say like engage your core, people definitely don't know what that means. And a lot of people just suck in. They yeah. like suck their belly button in. And that's definitely not going to create that kind of inter-abdominal pressure that we're looking for. Yeah. What we're looking for is just a very stable base. And the way that we get that stability is we we brace like we're going to be punched in the stomach. It really is like the best way of, of viewing it. Yeah. <laughs> Another way that Pavel talks about in Strong First is um, breathing behind the shield. Yep. And so that for, for that, it's almost like bracing for a punch but not holding your breath. So he, one of the examples he gives is like if you were, if like a 300 pound person was going to sit on you while you're lying down, yep. like if you're on your back and a 300 pound person is going to sit on you for a long time, <laughs> you have to figure out how to breathe, but also not let them crush you. So you're kind of like bracing, but also breathing at the same yeah, time. So they're not visual. crushing you. It really is. It, it makes you immediately do what you need to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of the bracing part of, of yeah. the equation. Now in terms of breathing, again, we don't really go too crazy with our cueing and instruction for this because... We're, we're more concerned about, are they doing the, the entire squat movement right? Are they doing the deadlift movement right? We don't want breathing and bracing to be the main focus and draw away from what they're doing with the actual lift itself. Um, and so in terms of breathing, basically when they're first starting out, and let's say they're doing a goblet squat or a squat to a box or a kettlebell squat, we actually just have them just breathe normally. And if they ask, what we'll say is, as you're coming down, breathe in, and as you're coming up, just breathe out. And we just make it as simple as possible. Now, as they get into more advanced variations, maybe a barbell, like a zercher squat or a front squat or even a back squat, and they're still not at like very heavy weights compared to what they can lift. So let's say they're at, I don't know, 50 to 80% of their one rep max, what we perceive. Um, then we'll just tell them, as you come down, inhale, and as you come out, have a sharper exhale. And this could be in the form of a tss or a if you can hear that. <laughs> um, but basically, a sharper exhale will basically tighten your abs a little bit more as you come up and just give you a little bit more support in your core. Now, as you're getting into more and more significant weight ranges, so maybe 85% and above, that's when we start to have a little bit more of a deeper conversation of how breath starts to play a more important role. And so what we might say is, okay, I'm going to have you breathe in on the way down, but at the bottom, I want you to hold your breath and then forcefully exhale as you're coming up to the top. And so there's an element of breath holding and tension creating at the very bottom, the most vulnerable part of the lift in order to create a little bit extra stability. Sometimes we might even say, okay, at the top of your squat, I want you to take a big inhale in, then hold your breath, come down, still hold your breath, and then come up, and as you're coming up, exhale. And now obviously that's gonna be more of an advanced technique because they're holding their breath that entire duration, um, but you get the benefit of getting a lot more stability that way. Right, but you we, wouldn't do that if you were, um, if you have high blood pressure, if you're pregnant, there's like some different yes, times where definitely. you really don't wanna do those breath holding techniques. Um, but if you're powerlifting and you're trying to really increase your weights and you don't have any health contraindications, then then that is usually what's going to get you the most. Like, yeah. Now, the reason why, another reason why we don't like to start off with these sorts of breathing tactics and techniques 
are that when someone's first learning the movement, if we teach them to inhale like deeply and then hold their breath, and as they come down, they exhale hard, they again, they focus so much attention to that, and it also starts to become more of a compensation mechanism. They start to use that as a form of stability. It's rather than trying to figure out, okay, how can I really be the most balanced and most efficient positioning possible so that I can really get up and down with the most with the least amount of effort possible? But if you just hold your breath and strain your neck and you start to utilize these other muscle groups to try to help out, you start to realize that they're kind of like just barely surviving the movement rather than really honing their technique and refining their pattern and making it as efficient as possible. Yeah, exactly. So there definitely is a like it it can be too early to talk about breathing and bracing. Um, And so definitely wait until the person just feels super, super comfortable with the deadlift and with the squat before you even start introducing that. And that it goes back to just making sure that you're always thinking about the long-term plan and vision and not rushing the process with any of these lifts. And when you have, when either if you're coaching someone or if you're a new person, like if you're just starting out on a strength training routine, don't rush to the barbell. Don't rush to trying to set any records or to see, check, like test your max or anything like that. Just really like stay the course and and do go through all the progressions and do them with normal breathing normal bracing like don't don't overly do any of that until you get to the point where you're like hey you know what I think that this is something I actually want to test out like I actually want to see how much weight I can lift and then go on a program that you can then gradually build up using some of these techniques don't just go from not using any of these techniques to like using the third one that Jason yeah. talked about with like the breath holding and the sharp exhale, like gradually work up to that as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it's like a matter of priorities, right? So if someone is first learning how to back squat and they're using light loads, the priority is the movement. Once they start to get more proficient with the movement, then you can start to add load and maybe that's the priority later on. But when you're first learning the movement, it's a totally different strategy, totally different uh, instructional like lesson than when you're loading someone up. Um, And like, you know, the example that I always go back to is golf. I always talk about golf and again, I I still don't golf. (laughs) But golf is just such an extreme sport where it's like, Nick, nobody's <laughs> ever said golf is such an extreme sport. <laughs> it's the first time ever in history everyone started a sentence with golf is such an extreme sport. <laughs> golf golf is, 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 is probably the most uh, movement, um, what am I trying to say here? It requires a lot of movement. It requires like, yeah, a, a lot of movement awareness. Yes. And yes. yeah, it's, it's less about like contact and physicality. It's all about just fluid movement. And so, so the least extreme sport. Yeah, also. yeah, not extreme at all. <laughs> extreme in terms of movement. <laughs> Sorry, I keep interrupting. I just thought that was really funny. Um, and so, basically, you know what people tend to do when they're trying to learn a movement initially is they'll try to use these artificial strategies to basically enhance the movement when all all they really need is to just relax a little bit more and let kind of like everything the learning kind of like take place. And so if someone is swinging uh, like their driver and uh, they're just going, getting really frustrated and they're holding their breath and they're tensing their muscles, a good golf instructor might say, hey, let's take a step back. 
let's breathe for a little bit, let's relax, and then let's go back to it. Or they might even call the session off altogether and say, hey, let's come back tomorrow, let's do it again, you're gonna be much better off for it. And they'll realize that just because they're in a more relaxed state, they're, they're not as tense, they're not holding their breath, they suddenly get a lot better because now their body has a chance to figure out where it is in space and it has a better opportunity to just understand what they're feeling throughout the motion rather than kind of clouding their mind with all this tension and excess like just just tightening basically yeah yeah cool cool you're, you're still on the extreme i just part. can't get over that you said golf is the most extreme sport golf, golf is the most extreme <laughs> um no i think that pretty much answers it so yeah basically we we coach it very gradually it comes up later on in the process, um, bracing as well. It, it really starts off with just teaching proper, um, alignment and, and mechanics rather than talking about like the punch in the stomach thing that kind of comes later as well. Yeah. Um, but all of those things, I think the beginning where we laid out the, pro- where Jason laid out the progression, that's really, really how we go about it. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think those are all the answers to your burning questions for today. Thank you so much for those submissions. And if you have any more questions for us, you can always DM us at Achieve Fitness Boston on Instagram. If you like this podcast and you wouldn't mind helping us out with a little iTunes review, we'd be super, super grateful for that. And until next time, peace, love, and and muscles. muscles.